Welcome to War Room, the official podcast of the U.S. Army War College Online Journal, graciously supported by the Army War College Foundation. Please join the conversation at warroom.armywarcollege.edu. We hope you enjoy the program. Hello and welcome to the War Room Podcast. Today I'm joined by General John Hyten, the Commander of U.S. Strategic Command. Sir, welcome to the War Room Podcast. Thanks. It's great to be here, Andrew. General Hyten is, as I mentioned, currently the Commander of U.S. Strategic Command. He's a 1981 graduate of Harvard University, and we were discussing before we recorded that uh, you don't have many fellow Harvard graduates in your no, circles. I, I love my alma mater, but I, I didn't have any plans of making the Air Force a career. I was going to be four years and get out, and they were paying for my school, so I was more than happy with that. But I look at some of my uh, friends who have longtime academy classmates that uh, are with them, and I, I haven't had anybody, any of my classmates in the Air Force in almost 30 years. So I'd love to know, just as an aside, how, how you ended up staying in. You know, what, what was it that changed your mind? So the big thing that changed my mind was uh, uh, a focus on the people, a focus on the mission, and working for something bigger than you are. But it really came clear when I was at the nine-year point, and I, uh, I actually realized I needed to get on with my life, I thought. And so I interviewed with companies, and, and uh, I got the dream job offer that I wanted, tripling my salary, signing bonuses. Uh, we'd afford the, the house in my hometown on the golf course, all all the things I thought I wanted. And I came home and I told my wife, and we had a, a one little baby and a new baby on the way, and I said, I've decided to go to the Air Force. And she asked me, so I thought you love the Air Force. And I said, I do love the Air Force. And she said, why are you going to quit? I said, well, I'm not quitting. I'm, I'm just taking it. No, you're quitting. I thought you loved the Air I do love the Air Force. <laughs> she says, well, why are you going to take another job then? I said, well, we have more money. Don't, don't you have enough money now? I said, no, but we'd have more, and we could get a bigger house. She says, you don't like where we live either? Are you not happy with anything? And she's, after about an hour, I'm a pretty smart guy, I realized, you know, she just kept asking me over and over, and I do love the Air Force, so why would I quit what I love and the people that I love working with to go chase a dollar? And so my goal then was if I could somehow command one time before I finished, that would be great. And as a blind kid from Alabama, that's actually a, a stretch goal. And the fact that I got to do that now multiple times, including at the command command level, is pretty crazy. That's a, that's a fantastic story. It sounds like your wife would have been home talking with Socrates, right? So she has a skill in asking questions that kind of gets you to, to yep. some underlying truth. Yep. She, uh, so she's the smartest one in the house. There's no doubt about that. And she just keeps asking me the, the obvious questions. And, you, you know, I've, I've thought about these things a lot, but somehow I'm just slow sometimes, and I don't, don't quite get it. But, yeah, I... I love the Air Force, and I love the military, and I love working with the other services. I, I love defending this country. I love waking up every morning and still putting on a uniform, even after 37 years. That's, that's a pretty neat thing to do. Well, that's, that, that's a sign that it means a lot to you. So as you, uh, as you consider your own leadership responsibilities, are there leaders out there that, well, either you know, living or, or dead or that you've known personally or not that you admire? Gosh, there's so many that I admire. Uh, people ask me a similar question, do you have a mentor? You know, and I, I actually don't have a mentor. I have about 50 mentors. My first boss in the Air Force was an Air Force captain who retired as a colonel uh, named Ed Seward. Uh, he kind of showed me the way. My first commander was uh, a colonel named Bob Hedges. 
he showed me the way. I've worked for uh, General Tom Mormon, uh, kind of the the hero of the, the Space Force and the Air Force. I've got to meet General Schriever. I've got to meet General DeCook. Both have passed away now. They were my heroes. I've got to work for uh, General Shelton and General Chilton and General Kaler and General Lord. and uh, They've all seen something in me that uh, they th- thought was worth saving. And I tell you, those, those folks that I just ticked off, when I look back in my life and I think of how many times I was in trouble, big trouble, because I did something wrong, those were my bosses. And they're the ones I was in trouble with. And they're the ones that uh, corrected my behavior and put me back on the path. And they're the ones that made me a general and the ones that made me who I am. So it's pretty remarkable is that teachers and mentors come in lots of shapes and sizes. But my family, my teachers in school, my bosses from captains all the way to generals, I've had chiefs that took care of me. It's just there's no one person I can put in, but it's, it's all of those that touch my life. Leadership, especially in a large organization like yours, is, is complex. Are there some things that you try to remember that, to simplify things for yourself, some underlying principles? So uh, I always try to remember uh, where I was when, like today when I'm speaking to the War College, I try to remember when I was at that level and uh, what I was thinking. If I'm talking to airmen, I try to remember what I was thinking when I was lieutenant. Uh, I try to, if I'm talking to commanders, I try to think of what I was thinking when I was a commander. So I, uh, I don't want to talk about what's important to me. I want to talk about what's important to them. That's the trick to communicating, I think, is that you have to understand your audience and focus on communicating to them. It's not about you. It's about them. Are there things that you have to deal with now that you wish you understood better earlier in your career in terms of preparing yourself for the challenges that you face? So you could go a, a, a number of different ways on that. Uh, I think I think the biggest thing that I wish I knew now that I could have explained earlier is I wish I could explain to my wife all the things that were going to come with this for the last few years. I mean, I, you know, I'm, I'm just an airman uh, trying to do the best job I can with very difficult challenges in a very difficult world, working with the best people that I can. But the way the world is right now, I get uh, criticized. Uh, I get things said about me that aren't true. Uh, and I understand that's part of the job, but I never explained that to my wife. And I wish I'd have done a, a better job of explaining what was going to happen, but I really didn't know what was going to happen. So I couldn't do that. But if I could go back in time, as I, as uh, my boss called me up and said, hold on for the ride, you're going to be a one-star, I wish I could have sat down with Laura and, and not just celebrated but said, okay, here's the things that are going to happen when you become a general officer. And I really didn't understand that. So that's, that's probably the biggest issue. And then the application of mission orders that I learned when I was a squadron commander. And I, I didn't do it well my first year as a squadron command, but I learned to do it well as the second year in squadron command. That's the biggest lesson that I carry forward in leadership because people actually want to do their jobs. And so the job of a commander is to do your job, not their job. And uh, I realized after my first year in command, I had three NCOs come up to me and explain that to me, and they did it in a very good way that I was doing their job. Uh, and they would really appreciate it if I did my job. And so my job is a commander. It's not to be 
the supervisor of airmen. It's not to be the supervisor of soldiers and sailors and Marines. My job is to be the commander and uh, to let the NCOs do their job, let the officers do their job, let the commanders do their job, the, the directors do their job. And uh, when that happens, people are actually emboldened and enabled to do their job. That's, to me, leadership. It seems like it's getting easier for higher level commanders to be more involved though at lower levels, right? I mean, technology in many ways enables that. So how do you, how do you kind of prevent yourself from getting dragged down? I fight against that every day. And so the, w the way I do that is that uh, unless something is broken, I refuse to dig down into it. If something is broken, I'll dig down in. And if I don't like what I see, I'll dig a little further. Mm -hmm. And the, the great thing about command now is like you say, you can go all the way down if you need to quickly, uh, which is useful. But I will only do that if something is broken. If things are going right, then I'm going to give the commanders all the room, and that means I have to stop, even if I'm curious about what's going on, and let the commanders do that job. I have to know enough about what's going on to make sure I, they're executing my vision and intent. Uh, but once they're inside that left and right boundary, go as fast as you can, and, and I'll I'll watch you and I'll, I'll make sure we're going down that path, but I'm not gonna do your job. At, at your level, much of what you do, and you, you alluded to it earlier, is managing out and, and up, right? So it's communication and persuasion and it's, it's less internal, but you still have a lot of things that you're trying to do internally. So how do you balance those two requirements? So it's, uh, my favorite days are down and in. The hardest days are up and out, uh, but some of the most important days are the up and out days. Because as a combatant commander, uh, I have requirements to be up and out, either uh, on Capitol Hill, uh, with our allies, you know, broadly based, how do I reach out for the command to make sure that my command can do their job and that our message is being delivered. And it's interesting because I think uh, the commander of STRATCOM has a little bit bigger job today than we did 20 or 30 years ago. Because 30 years ago, we still talked about deterrence a lot in this country. We still talked about um, nuclear weapons a lot in this country. Today, the broader population does not. And therefore, part of my job is to make sure that that becomes part of the dialogue again, because we have adversaries that are making it part. And if I don't talk about it, then the conversation doesn't start these days. And I want that conversation to start. It's interesting, I think, how quickly we've forgotten as a, as a country those conditions that you're describing of sort of the 1980s. One of my most formative memories, I, I kid you not, is seeing the movie The Day After right. when I was a child, which, by the way, shouldn't have happened. I was way too young to right. watch it. Yeah. But it was profoundly disturbing to me. And, and you know, I, I was talking with my kids who were, you know, 13, 11, 9 years old about some of these things and you know the 24-hour alerts and and so on and it is uh it is kind of a different world now it is and if you if you want to think about it you know when i was a kid we did duck and cover drills in elementary school you know we would uh pretend that a, a russian soviet nuclear weapon was coming to huntsville alabama and uh and we would practice our procedures which were get out of your desk climb under your desk duck and cover whether that would do any good or not, I don't know. I imagine Huntsville was probably a target. It was a target. And actually, <laughs> I, my deputies from 15 miles from where I grew up, Admiral Richard, and, and we talk about how proud we were that we were a target because that meant Huntsville was important. Yeah. Uh, but we used to do that. We don't do that anymore. 
But, but in 2016, Russia did a civil defense drill like that with 40 million other citizens. Wow. 40 million Russians participated in that kind of civil defense drill responding to attack from the United States. So if our adversaries are looking at it that way and they're building weapons to challenge us, this is not a theoretical problem. This is a real problem that we have to deal with. I wanted to ask you a question about something you, you have in your um, commander's intent and vision where you describe your vision as one innovative U.S. STRATCOM warfighting team, which I think is a very interesting phrase. So when you use that word innovative, for you, what, what does that mean? So, so you have to look at it in context of the whole phrase because each of those words is part of it. Innovative is part of it. But uh, the command, and I've been part of this command for most of my adult life uh, as a component or directly involved in it. Uh, this command has been stovepiped in the different organizations. There was the, the nuclear arm, there was the space arm, there was the missile defense arm. For a while there was the cyber arm, the ISR arm, the countering weapons of mass destruction arm, the electronic warfare arm. And inside the nuclear arm there was the ICBM arm, the, uh, uh, the, the submarine arm, the bomber arm, the cruise missile arm, the gravity bomb arm, the weapons arm. I mean, it's a lot a of arms, like it's an octopus. A, it's an octopus. It's yeah. arms <laughs> everywhere, uh, which means we weren't one team. We were a whole bunch of different teams. And people always ask me, you know, who's the integrator? Well, that means the command's not working right because we all have to be the integrator. Mm -hmm. We all have to work together. And so, so the vision started forming then. It says the vision of the command is instead of having all these stovepipes, these single arms that are operating independently, uh, the vision for the command should be when we operate all together as one warfighting team. But then if you think about it, you just can't take the current capabilities we have and say, yep, now we're one team. You actually have to innovate. You have to change the concept of how you employ forces. You have to change how you integrate space into operations. How do you defend space? All those things require different thinking. That's the definition of innovation. Different thinking that derives different answers requires innovation to come up with those solutions. So it's one innovative warfighting team across all the domains where we don't care where the effect comes from. It's all about deterring the adversary and God forbid if we have to, defeating the adversary. How do you encourage that kind of innovative activity in the organization? Well, the, it, it's a challenge because uh, the nuclear business is not uh, built on innovation. In fact, there are certain elements of the nuclear business you don't want innovation in. You just want to execute that mission. So you have to explain to people that, hey, I just want the mission to get done. And you have to create the environment of, of freedom of thought, freedom of, to engage. And that's where mission type orders and commander's intent become the key piece of the puzzle. You have to create that room to maneuver. Because if people have no room to maneuver, they will not think and they will not innovate. So creating that room to maneuver is a big part of my job. And that's why when you read the vision and intent, you'll see that it's very broad left and right boundaries that are defined in that. And as long as they're inside that, I say it in the intent, you can go as fast as you want to inside those boundaries. Now, that actually is resonating very well with uh, the younger people that are coming into it, because that's the way they've been taught through school. But people that are my age and, you know, kind of senior folks, we don't think that way, uh, because that's not the way we were taught and the way we were trained and the way we were educated. So we have to work a lot with the, the top levels of leadership to make sure that all the levels are enabling the force to be innovative. The tension you just described between having 
a mission that requires really reliable, compliant forces, right? I mean, safety protocols, I imagine, are pretty significant for right. the nuclear force. So, uh, and as you pointed out, that that's not always the most encouraging or enabling for, for innovation. With the nuclear force, it, the development in the early, the first few decades, I should say, after the Second World War, it was changing so rapidly. And, and now you're, you're leading an organization with systems that are that are pretty mature, but you're you're anticipating some significant changes that are coming. So that that seems like a, a difficult balance, right, to strike between. And and I probably was worried more about that than I should have been, uh, because once I get out to uh, the missile fields, the submarines, uh, to the bomber bases, those places that are you called more mature. Uh, more stable, older weapon systems, those are actually the place where there's lots of opportunity for innovation. Uh, innovation on how the crew force manages their schedule. Innovation on how they... Now, there's certain things that you don't change. Uh, if you're going to employ a nuclear weapon, you're going to do it the right way, on the right order, and that's the only way there is, and there's there's dozens of safeguards in the system to make sure you can do it no other way. But everything else about how you do your job is your job. Uh, and when you ask people, is there a better way to do this? It's funny. Lieutenants will come up with, oh, yeah, I don't know why we're doing this. You know, people say we've been doing this for 20 years, but I don't understand why. How about how do we adjust the schedule to allow this? How about we put the most experienced driver that actually drives in snow a lot? If it's snowy, we're not just going to say, okay, it's your turn, and, and you're from Florida. You drive today. No, how about having a, you know, a risk posture that says, hey, the experienced driver in snow, you drive today. We never think about that because we were, became so rigid. We just wouldn't ever adjust drivers. We wouldn't drive security. We wouldn't, all those things have huge opportunities. And those little innovation things actually turn into big innovation things as people start, hey, they let me do that. How about this? How about this? And then life gets better in each of those domains. Do you sense that the uh, appetite for investment in the nuclear forces has changed fundamentally? It, it has. Uh, but I was talking to... Uh, uh, the student body a while ago, it, it's a little bit fragile uh, in that uh, the investment is clearly coming and the morale is high. But I, I see, you know, the morale being fragile because if we don't follow through with the promises that we've made, yeah. that morale will go back the other way in a hurry. So right now, because of the leadership of a number of great people, especially in the submarine force, the bomber force, the ICB, the nuclear business, the morale is very high. But we've made promises to them that uh, new stuff is coming and they expect that new stuff. They don't want to operate 1950s technology their whole career. So we've got to follow through with that stuff and we've got to be more prompt in delivery of those capabilities because it can't take 15 years to build a new ICBM. Yeah, for years in the Cold War, the nuclear force was sort of picking first, right, from the budget. I mean, we we invested huge amounts in, in it, and that's certainly not been the case since the collapse of the Soviet Union. We sort of understand how maybe a pause was appropriate, but now it's 30 years almost since. Yeah, but, but you also look at uh, our adversaries didn't pause. No. Russia increased their nuclear expenditures by 50% in the year 2000. That's 18 years ago now. They've been modernizing their force the last 20 years. We just started the modernization force a couple years ago. Uh, we're 15 years away from delivering a modernized force. The Russians will be mostly done in 2020. The Chinese will be mostly done in 2020. 
we're actually trailing in the modernized force. Fortunately, when it comes to the nuclear capabilities, the only thing that is important is, is it safe, secure, ready, reliable, and, and undefeatable, to make up a word, by the adversary. And our stuff is right now. And I think it'll last, through, it certainly will last my entire tenure and my, the guy that comes after me and the person that comes after them. But the commander after the commander after me, I'm a little worried that, that we could put him or her in a position where they can't make the statement that I can respond to any threat that's, uh, and we can never allow a commander to be in that position. Yeah. Well, and to be clear, I wasn't uh, implying that we're still in an appropriate pause. I think it's been obviously yep. far too far too long. So last question, uh, one we like to ask when we when we speak to leaders like you, is there something you've read recently that, that you know, you're very struck by that you'd like to recommend to the audience and, and why? So I think the, uh, um, there's a couple books that I read recently. So I, I got a similar question from, from the student body and I guess I'll give the, I was gonna give a different answer, but. I'll give the answer that I'm reading right now. And I'm, I'm reading Rickover right now, a uh, biography of Rickover. And uh, I'm doing that, I'm, and I just reread a biography of Schriever again. Uh, it was a fiery piece in the Cold War. Um, uh, I read Eric Schlosser's Command and Control again. Because uh, my biggest fear is, has been for the last couple of years that our country's lost the ability to go fast and where our adversaries are going fast. So how do we recapture that? And so I wanted to, look at people that went fast. And Rickover took a, you know, a reactor that was the size of a small building and put it on a 28-foot submarine and went around the world in five years under the water. Uh, Schriever built 800 new three-stage solid rocket ICBMs with new command and control, new infrastructure, uh, new launch control centers, new missile alert facilities, 800 of them in five years for a fraction of the cost that we're, we're spending today to build 400. Uh, so how did they do things to go fast. So I'm reading that to learn from those kind of leaders. And I guess the last piece is my, my favorite book on leadership is a book called Partners in Command. And it's about Eisenhower and Marshall. And I would recommend that book to anybody because if you want to know the definition of selfless service, uh, read the story about Marshall when he's offered the job of Supreme Allied Commander in Europe and he turns it down. Uh, and the rationale is just unbelievably insightful. And if you talk about one of the greatest Americans of our entire history, it's George Marshall. Uh, General of the Army, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State, the Marshall Plan. But the decision that day, I think is probably one of the most significant decisions in our history. And it's, it's lost in the history books in most time, but Partners in Command tells it really well. Well, sir, thank you very much for taking the time to speak with us today in the War Room. We really appreciate you sharing your insights. Well, thanks very much for the time. I enjoyed it. And thank appreciate you for joining us. We hope you'll join us next time. And that concludes our program. Thank you for listening. The views expressed in this podcast reflect those of the speakers and do not necessarily reflect the views, policies, or positions of the U.S. Army or the Department of Defense. Let us know what you think. Provide us your feedback, comments, or suggestions through our webpage at warroom.com dot armywarcollege.edu and have a great day.